Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. My guest today, Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, is passionate about financial inclusion and financial health. Having grown up in Argentina, she saw the impact of hyperinflation on families and knew then that she wanted to do something about it. As the United Nations Secretary General's Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development, Her Majesty is a global voice on advancing access to affordable and safe financial services. And she has made real inroads for financial health across the world through close collaboration with partners from both the public and private sectors. Your Majesty, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So as princess and then as queen of the Netherlands, you could have chosen numerous issues to champion, but you chose financial inclusion. Tell us why. Well, to begin with, at the age of 14, I decided I was going to study economics because um, in that time in Argentina, uh, things were not very well macroeconomically. I lived through hyperinflation and I could see how basically normal people were actually being, yeah, their economic lives were destroyed by it. And uh, so I had this idea that one day I'm going to become Minister of Finance and improve uh, people's people's lives. And uh, of course, by the time I actually got my degree and ended up being in banking, and I said, well, you know, this is something I still want to do is help through investments, you know, help through, you know, to the household itself. So this whole thing about micro really interested me. So I started doing this whole microfinance, but of course we had a lot more than just microfinance, right? So, and that's how I ended up in the financial inclusion, because also I do think that the impact of it is actually enormous. It is... We know already it's not only pro-growth, so countries in in itself will have a higher GDP once you have a fully financially included population, but we also know it's pro-poor, which means that actually it reduces inequality. And that's something that is always really interesting me very, very much. This whole issue of actually giving people the same type of possibilities um, economically for their lives is something that I'm really passionate about. And that really, really annoys me when, uh, you know, the possibilities are not there for people to grasp. And... You know, think about also the very big issues that we have, right? So food security, if a farmer doesn't have access to savings or access to insurance or access to credit, he cannot really increase the yields and actually produce all the food that we all need to this increasing population. Think about um, energy or climate change. If, uh, you know, in Africa, we're seeing projects of people, you know, now with a mobile phone, they can actually buy every day with the same price and actually have this little jerry can of kerosene. With that same money, they're now paying off a solar panel that is giving electricity for the whole family. And after three months, that piece of solar panels is the biggest asset for that family. 
So climate change, I mean, we've seen after typhoon, uh, uh, the typhoon in, in, in the Philippines, what that actually, these type of savings and insurance actually did for, for, for people, they could actually get out of this humongous shock much better. So um, these issues of actually decreasing inequality, smoothing consumption, uh, and giving people opportunities to make the best of their lives is something that, you know, really interests me. That's the reason why. Well, your passion comes through so clearly. And you might not have become the finance minister, but in 2009, you were named the UN Secretary General Special Advocate for Inclusive Finance for Development. Tell our listeners, what does this mean? What does that role entail? Basically, what I do is um, I, I try to advocate for financial inclusion. You know, uh, 10 years ago, I would say 12 years ago, nobody knew the word financial inclusion. I think by now, everybody knows what it is. And actually, even after COVID, that was actually very, very interesting, is that if there's any doubt that financial inclusion was important, COVID took that away because a lot of countries realized that if they actually had to give some kind of subsidy grant or help small businesses or, or women uh, during this whole pandemic, was they needed to have financial inclusion. So that really, the whole issue that we need financial inclusion is not really my job anymore. But what I do is twofold. First of all, I go to countries and I try together with all my partners because I don't do this alone, we're trying to make it happen. And um, what do I mean by making it happen? We speak to the, you know, from the telecom regulatory, we speak to the central bank, we speak to the Minister of Finance, the president. And the whole issue is to get the job done on a regulatory perspective. But we also speak to the private sector there and say, you know, how can you actually improve the quality of your products? How you can actually sort of, you know, work together and cooperate, cooperate, for example, a bank with a mobile uh, uh, network operator. And in that way, actually get the job done. So um, I'm extremely proud. We already have more than 50 uh, different national strategies, financial inclusion national strategies around the world. And we have seen, you know, more than 1.2 billion people that have had more access to financial services from 2011 to 2017. And I know it's going to be more because the figures are not going to be coming by the end of this year. But we still have 1.7 million billion to go. So um, the work is still ongoing. But there is, a, I have to say that so much has been done. And I'm sure that after COVID, we're going to see huge increases as well. The other thing that I also do is, I, I also talk about the, like the big issues around financial inclusion globally. So for example, the whole issue of data. When I started this work, I didn't know how many people we needed to give financial inclusion to. I mean, was it 500 million? Was it 3 billion? So getting that data was a huge public good piece that I needed. And why is this important? Because with that, I can go to a country and say, yeah, listen, only 13% of the population is financially included. So there's a work that you need to do. Oh my God, 13%, oh. So then they start to do that work. If I don't have that data, I cannot really, you know, um, convince really people that they have to do this work. 
The other issues are all the standard setting uh, bodies. So, you know, they're mostly in Basel. Um, before that, they all looked at the financial stability of a financial sector. But, you know, but if the financial stability of a sector is very good, but it only improves 30% of the population, what does it work for, right? And, and so all these discussions were actually extremely good. And at the beginning, was like, you know, why should we care about that? But then they realized that they, they did actually care and it was important for them. So now... Financial inclusion is a very intrinsical part of their work as well. And, you know, defining issues, the outcomes about financial health. What is that? What is the best policies? Yeah. And they were talking about now the digital environment that is really helping us to do most of the financial inclusion right now. Okay, what are the dangers? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? Define them, uh, develop the knowledge, and try to disseminate that knowledge. I mean, for example, central bank digital currencies is a good, is a bad for, for financial inclusion. All these big discussions that, you know, I don't think that any one governor of a central bank should be making by its own. We have to develop this body of knowledge globally, and that's what I also tried to do. Got it. Well, I'm going to have you back to have a whole nother conversation about central bank digital currency, because <laughs> I'm also still trying to figure out whether I think it's good or bad for inclusion. But for another day, you have started talking in about financial health recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you created a financial health working group as part of the UN SGSA. And the mission of the group has been to build a new consensus and to drive action around financial health. So why the shift? Why the shift from financial health to financial financial inclusion, excuse me, to financial health? Well, because financial health is always what I wanted, but I needed to have the rails done first. So if I cannot get to people that like today was speaking to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of South Africa, and she was saying to me, you know, what we realized during the COVID is that we put so much money into the system uh, to help businesses, etc. But we never, never reach the informal women. So therefore, we it's like they didn't exist. So they actually faced, of course, the biggest brunt of the whole pandemic. So this whole issue of financial health is the outcome. I mean, financial inclusion is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. I always wanted to actually go to the outcome, which is the development, which is that people have really good financial uh, lives. And what does it mean that? Because, you know, everybody had a different definition. So what I thought it was really important is to actually get a group of all the people already doing any work on financial health um, to mm-hmm. actually come up with a definition. It was like quite a tough job to do. And uh, so it's basically based on four issues. First of all, you have to have enough money to come up, you know, or at least make uh, funds to your day-to-day finances. A second issue is you have to have resilience. So if there is an um, external shock that actually happens, you have to, you know, have savings or insurance that would actually you know, help you through that moment, you're not going to have any income and even make you bounce back better. And it has to be able to pursue or help you to pursue and achieve long-term goals. I mean, let's talk about pension, let's talk about being able to pay for college for your kids. And it has to, the fourth one is actually very important, is actually it, you have to feel secure and in control of your finances. 
And this is a very subjective issue, but um, I think it's a very important one because uh, the stress that actually financial unhealthy lives, uh, um, basically the amount of stress that people have through over indebtedness or, or not being secure, but being able to pay the, the, the college tuition of a, of a child is just so big that I think it's extremely important that we actually uh, measure that as well. And what is a very important issue is that this is not an issue only in developing countries. It's a huge issue in developed countries. Even in my country, the Netherlands, uh, we have you know 17 million uh, uh, inhabitants, and we have 650,000 households that are over indebted, that have problematic debts. That's a huge number. These are people that are really extremely stressed, and we know that what this financial stress does to people. It, it, we have some research that even says it can even curtail 13 points on your IQ. But that actually gives you a little bit of a, it just paralyzes people. So I, that's why I think the subjective and the, 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 the mental health part needs to be a part of it as well. And it has a huge effect therefore on your productivity. So therefore in your work and in your physical health. And I have to say that um, a lot of companies and, and, and have actually noticed that by actually addressing this issue, it, their, the productivity of their employees have actually increased tremendously and the loyalty to, of, of course, the company. But it's, it's um, I'm happy that we had this working group because we defined a definition. We also came up with a couple of indicators which should have been uh, collecting and um, and also a set of what you what should the public sector do and also what should the private sector do. Got it. So um, we were really honored to be able to participate in the working groups. And so there were, correct me uh, if I'm wrong, there were three work streams, right? A public sector work stream, a private sector work stream, and then a work stream around measurement. Um, and you just describe what each of those groups were doing. You've talked a lot about um, the need for the government and the private sector to work together in order to make inclusion and now financial health um, a real possibility. And you've used your platform to convene um, CEOs, including the CEO Partnership for Economic Inclusion, and to really call on CEOs to get them involved. In fact, um, I think the way you and I first met several years ago was through Dan Schulman when you uh, held um, a small meeting uh, at PayPal on the West Coast of the United States. Talk a little bit about how companies and business leaders can be partnering with governments um, and NGOs to really move the needle here. What's the role that they should be playing? Well, I think that the private sector, on, on two roles, you know, the, the private sector can do, first of all, they have their own employees and customers. And Certainly, the companies that are in the financial sector, they have also yes. even more important role to play. It's not only but also the customers with their products, they can actually move the needle on having a family uh, being, uh, you know, financially healthy or not, right? So uh, I think that we'd like to sort of dif differentiate, you know, one one is your own employees and the other is from your own customers. Uh, when it's your own employees, it's been, I mean, you, you've mentioned Dan Schulman and th their work in PayPal, but also Mastica did a wonderful job. It's first of all, is survey. What is the financial stress of my employees? So what Dan actually tried to use is disposable net income and also tried to sort of see who was actually having financial stress. And um, 
we have not yet decided what type of KPIs actually private sector should be doing, but we're trying to sort of get that information together, see what the best practices are. But I think you have to start doing it. First, start with measuring. Measuring if your people actually have, uh, you know, debts or not. And then you have to start the conversation. And uh, definitely the HR department is a wonderful place to start and see what are the policies that you as an employer can do to actually, you know, um, make face to whatever it is. Is it because they already are indebted? You know, could they actually have a coach that can actually help them, you know, rebalance and rebudget their lives, et cetera. Um, on the side of the uh, customer side, it's a little bit more complicated because I think that's where I think policymakers and, and, and the public and the private sector should actually be working a lot more together. Because then there is a cross between what regulators actually uh, have in mind when they approve a certain product by a certain financial sector. And what I would love, love to have is in the future that there is a conversation constantly about, you know, does this product really need to better financial lives? Yeah. And if, if, for example, a, the public sector said, listen, I would like, you know, the public to increase their savings by a good 20% is to sit together with the private sector. So, okay, how do we create default options that are leads to bigger uh, saving behavior. Um, if we talk about sort of insurance, the same story. I think there's a lot to be done to be working together in that respect. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more about the possibility of regulators really supervising institutions on the basis of what's the outcome of the product and service that you're offering. You know, the other thing we have started to do work in though, is to think about what other sectors have a role to play in the financial health of their customers. So for one would be healthcare, their patients. Um, and you, you spoke about the significant intersection between financial, physical, and mental health. And so we're now doing some work in the healthcare sector um, not just about their employees, but about their patients. I think the other arena where we've done some work would be in higher ed with their students, uh, another place. So I, I, I have a little bit of a dream that, you know, someday most, maybe not all, but most sectors will see their way towards understanding the um, sort of role and responsibility that they have around the fin broader financial health of, you know, the whole ecosystem. Well, I will tell you a story. So I'm doing this work here in the Netherlands as well. So one of the things that um, about five years ago, I started this uh, debt lab, uh, which is now trying to help people reduce uh, the over-indebtedness in the Netherlands and, and uh, I'm, um, you know, uh, helping them to expand around all the municipalities. Anyway, of course, the Dutch system is not the same as the US system. But one of the things that we realized is that um, the, we have to look at the early warnings when people start sort of, you know, developing the, you know, vicious circle of uh, financial and healthy lives. And the first early warning is when people stop paying the, the, the premium for the health insurance here in the Netherlands. Right. Because they know that it really becomes sick. People, you know, the doctor will always pick up the phone. You know, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, having a debt with the insurance company. But they will not stop, you know, paying the electricity bill because the next day they will cut it, right? Oh, but wow. they will not cut, cut your you know, health system. So that's the end. And that's why 
we also need the health insurance companies with us to start us giving the early warning. So the moment a family starts sort of delaying their payments, we should be immediately there. And actually, what's going wrong? Can we help you? Uh, you know, how you find yes. us doing? Maybe then we realize that one of the wife, you know, the wife is sick, so she hasn't been able, so there's one income less or whatever it is. But early warnings are so extremely important. And the reason why all these health insurance companies were extremely uh, you know, interested in, in participating is because they realized themselves that, you know, the families and their physical health start going down when stress because they start living you know less healthy lives and all that that entails so it is extremely important that we look just beyond mm -hmm. the financial service providers to be honest with you here in the netherlands where we get into these families and they have you know big debts they have 14 different creditors in which only one of them is a financial service institution mm. so so definitely we have to look much broader, but let's start by focusing because the work is so big right now. <laughs> so, and also, you know, because the financial sector providers um, are just so important and suddenly that would actually increase uh, their financial health of families, like increasing your insurance, increasing your savings, managing your cash, you know, helping, you know, with enough to actually come up with early warnings. Be careful. If you're spending too much, you still have your fixed costs. And you have to... So there's so much that we could be doing on that front. So I hope there to, uh, to have a lot of these type of companies engaged in the future. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Not only do they have a special responsibility, but also in a way as the plumbing, they're a little bit the glue amongst all of these other sectors. They're the one sector that works with all the other sectors. So ultimately, ultimately I think that they will be an interesting pathway um, into those other sectors. Let's talk about women for a second. I know it's a subject you're also quite passionate about. You've been a champion of the rights and well-being of women around the world. Um, in the United States, we see a distinct disparity. So our own Pulse Financial Health Trends Report found that only 26% of women are considered financially healthy compared to 43% of men. This is a stark reality for us, but the fact is many countries around the world have an even wider gender gap. So what are you seeing that really works to improve the financial health outcomes for women? Well, start with, I mean, I always say you start with education. Yeah. So there's there's a very big element that, you know, financial literacy, we see that that is, you know, lower among women in general. And it, it, it's different for countries. So it's a very big generalization. But um, this is an issue that we need to focus a lot more. So the financial literacy of women and girls need to be, uh, I mean, strengthening overall also for men, but, you know, definitely for women. Number two, it is, of course, about the economic independency of women. So, you know, not a lot of women are economically independent. So therefore, they are going to have much stricter financial lives. And third, they are less well served by the financial sector sometimes. You know, they, they bank differently. They, they 
uh, they, they ask for credits differently. I mean, we've realized, for example, in the Netherlands, that only one third of the SME credits, uh, um, only one third of the SME credits actually go to women. So there is a huge pent up demand. A lot of women do not get the credit they need because they do, they do, they see businesses in a different light than men do. So having sort of more women vision, of, I want to say friendly, but you know, but the perspective of women is extremely important. But I think those three issues are the biggest issues. So it's not only financial inclusion that will do the job. Yeah, I agree. So there are no shortage of challenges facing society today. We've talked a lot about COVID. We've even mentioned climate change. There's political and economic uncertainty around the world and more. Given the moment that we're living in now, why should policymakers, business leaders, and innovators be putting financial health at the top of their agendas? Uh, uh, make, make your best argument, Your Majesty. <laughs> well, because financial inclusion is one of the infrastructure pieces that you need to achieve all of these or address all of these challenges. If we're speaking about inequality, I already explained. If we're speaking about climate change, uh, of course, we need to do humongous uh, investments for adaptation and mitigation. But also, what about this, the, the households? How are they going to be protected against shocks in the climate change? Again, when the typhoon comes, I mean, the biggest issue is going to be the, the human cost. How do we help these people to actually have less economic cost, and that will be with financial, through financial inclusion. And that we know already that if you have less inequality and that you have better financial healthy lives, you have more stability in general, not only macroeconomically, but also socially. And that's, I think, something that, that that's a reason why I'm doing this work. Are you hopeful in this moment, given what's going on around the world? Do you feel like it's been a wake-up call? Or does it just feel like the problem is bigger than ever? Well, I think that the certain the pandemic has left us, you know, all the little ruptures we had in society just made it bigger. So I think the more urgency now to do the work that we need to do. And what makes me hopeful is I do hear a lot of phone calls saying, you know, well, well you've been talking about this issue. Now we really have to get it done. Because, and it's not a complicated something. It's not that complicated. We have to just get our act together and cooperate, you know, within the public sector and also with the private sector. So, um, yes, I'm hopeful because I see a lot of people that are wanting to make a change and, uh, and because they realize that, you know, we have to get our act together and we have to make change. Mm. Your Majesty, thank you so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you very much for having me. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.